0: The Bible is a collection of 66 different books. We often think that it's a book because it's in one little binding like a book, but that's very deceptive because it is not one book. It is 66 different pieces of literature bound together. It is written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and yet it tells the story of God working in human history. It tells a story that flows through generations and families and kingdoms. It rages with battles and miracles and life and death. And parts of the Bible read like this amazing adventure, this epic story. And other parts of the Bible read a little less exciting than that. Um, But again, all of it is God's story. And despite the many authors and the great amount of time over which it was written, the spread of time over which it was written, it does tell one beautiful story of how God is working to lead us to what is best for us, his best for us. But it can be really hard sometimes to make sense, to see the Bible as one cohesive, continuous story. Because when you read the New Testament, there's such a heavy emphasis on love and caring for those who were rejected by society, and helping those who were broken. And then there's parts in the Old Testament where it seems like God is less keen on the love and forgiveness part, and he's very keen on having Israel kill things. And it can be a little hard to reconcile the difference between those things. I mean, if you just look at the normal, everyday commands God gave the Jewish people, just their regular, everyday religious stuff, it was bloody and very gory. Being forgiven of your sin in their system required regularly bringing animals to the temple and killing them with your own hands so they could be offered as sacrifices. And so that was the method of forgiveness that God gave them. Ours is very different And so you think, how do these two things go together? How does this religious system that God gave them, this nasty, gory, bloody religious system that God gave them, and some of you maybe don't find it as bloody and gory, because some of you, you've raised livestock, you've killed livestock, you knew that your cow was going to be ribeyes and hamburgers, and that didn't bother you, okay? There's, There's people in the world like myself, who don't even want to watch a video about how, you know. Hamburgers are made like I don't want to know where my food comes from ignorance is very much bliss okay for some of us and and you know that's just the way things are but but it's shocking when you look at the differences at least on the surface of how this Old Testament system of blood and guts and gore can have anything to do with what we do today. And believe it or not, it's not only possible to make sense of these two things being one continuous story, but you can't have one without the other. You can't fully appreciate one without the other. And this week being the week before Easter... We are going to come and, and think about, and hopefully you'll spend some time this week thinking about and meditating on the fact that Jesus died on a cross, that our, our salvation was actually kind of a gory and bloody affair, and that we celebrate that death, that burial, that resurrection, and all that it means for us. And so what we're going to do today is hopefully, hopefully I will, this will be the accomplished task when we are done. Hopefully we're going to look at the sacrifice of Jesus and learn to appreciate a little bit more by understanding the system that God gave before he sent Jesus to the Jewish people, and how that actually matters for what we do today. Now, to make sense of anything in the Bible, we've got to start with a very unpleasant truth. And this is a foundational truth that is kind of behind everything that God does, all the ways that God interacts with us as human beings. Again, it's not good news. I'm just warning you right now, it's not good news. We'll get to the good news part in a minute. Sin always leads to death, every single time, without exception. And you might ask why. And the only answer I can really give you is that that's because God in his character, in his nature of justice, decides that there must be a punishment for every crime. And you can maybe say, well, if God's the one that decides all this, why didn't he just lighten up? Why doesn't he just forgive people the way he calls us to forgive people in the New Testament? Why can't he just let things go? It seems sometimes kind of silly to us when you look at the Old Testament and you think, okay, I get it. Some sins deserve death. Like we we are all kind of, if you push us to a point, we're kind of okay that some sins are pretty terrible and awful and something bad needs to happen to the person who carried that out. But then you get to something on the lower end of the spectrum that something we do on a fairly regular basis, a lot of us, which is what about a little white lie? Well, sin always leads to death. For a, a lie? Like that, what just one little lie? Like it doesn't seem to make sense that, that every sin deserves the same level of punishment. Well, here's the way that it helps me to think of this and make sense of it. Every sin is like committing treason against God and his way of order in the world Uh, sin is in a sense cosmic treason okay sin makes you a traitor to God and his creation because God created the world he made the world to operate a certain way he made our lives to uh, in such a way that they would thrive if we followed and and participated in his creative order of living that certain way and yet we all look at God and we say I don't need you I don't need to do things your way. I've been here five minutes and I can, you know, I can do what I want. I'm smart enough to decide my own path. God, I don't need to participate in what you've done for me. I don't need to participate in how you've trained the world to work. I'm just going to figure it out myself. And it's in the sense, we're like spitting in God's face and saying, no thanks, I'm smarter than you. And we disrupt not only our lives, we not only pull ourselves out of that orderly way he meant the world to work, but we've talked about this before, sin Always creates, co- creates collateral damage. We bring disorder not only on ourselves, but we like to bring everybody else along with us. And so we don't only mess up our world, we mess up the world as we, as we commit sin and it's rebellion against God. And since God made all the things, He's the boss. He decides what things should or how things should work, He decides what gets used for what purposes. Everything He has this full, complete say over. And so we have no right to come in and mess things up and break his laws and disobey him. It is treason. And so every sin breaks that. Every sin works against God's desire in the world. And so sin always leads to death. And there's never an exception to this in Scripture. Sin always, always leads to death. And it's this idea that is the foundation for pretty much the entire story of Scripture because the good news part of the story is that God's working with this truth to rescue us from that death. Because he's, we've already committed the sins, every one of us in this room, we're sinners, we've messed up, we all, always deserve death. But God's trying to rescue us from that. And so the first system that God gave his people to rescue them from that death was the Old Testament covenant. We call it the, the old covenant, the first covenant. Um, if you don't know what that really means, it means that basically our Bibles are divided into two major groups of promises. The old covenant, by the way, the word testament is a word that is just means covenant. So the old covenant, Testament is actually a story of this original promise that God made to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and the new covenant, the new Testament, is the second promise that he made to us through Jesus. So let's talk about the first promise. Um, If you want to grab a book, uh, a Bible, excuse me, we'll be in the second book of the Bible called Exodus. Exodus will be in the 24th chapter, and this is when God has kind of taken the people of Israel they were slaves in Egypt. He rescued them out of Egypt through some series of grand miracles. And he, makes, he gives them freedom. And he says, okay, now you guys, you're not just slaves anymore. You're your own nation. You're your own people. You have freedom, okay? This is like getting the keys to the car a little bit, okay? When you're 16, you finally have that taste of freedom. You're not totally under mom and dad's thumb anymore. This was what they should have been excited about. You're free. You've got your own thing now. We're going to be, you're going to be a nation, and not just any nation. He says, but I'm going to give you some guidelines. You're going to be a different kind of group of people. You're going to be a different nation, and we're going to make a promise together. I'll be your God if you be my people. And so he starts to lay out this covenant relationship, this religious relationship with the nation of Israel. And and this promise would govern the people of Israel for the next uh, 1,200 to 1,400 years, depending on how you date certain things in the Bible. And it is a mutual promise. This is God saying, I'll be with you, I'll be your God, and I will bless you, You be my people, and you obey me, and you follow all these rules and all these commands that I'm going to give you. And boy, did he come through on the commands. He gave them 600-plus commands that governed how they lived everyday life and how they interacted with him in in this religious system to have their sins forgiven when they failed and messed up. And so the story we're going to read today... God has already started giving them a little taste of this law, this covenant. And he's included the Ten Commandments, which a lot of people know. It starts in Exodus 20. He gives them a few more. And then in 24, he's kind of saying, okay, you've got a taste of what this relationship is going to look like. You guys have said you're in... I've said I'm in. Now it's almost like this is going to be like a weird marriage ceremony. This is God's way of saying, okay, we're going to seal this covenant, this promised relationship with a ceremony of sorts. And so we're going to read about this ceremony. And again, for the rest of the Old Testament, anytime we talk about the covenant, it's this covenant that they're talking about. Exodus 24. We'll start in verse 3. It says, Moses came and told the people, all the words of the Lord. So Moses has been up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, talking to God, and he told them all the rules. So this is Moses just kind of getting a little verbal agreement, okay? Um, let me give you an example. Like anytime I do a wedding, the wedding starts with the I do's. You can't go, a wedding, you can't go off a wedding by what you see on TV, They're like 30-second ceremonies on TV. They don't do half of the stuff that you're supposed to do in a wedding, technically speaking. But the wedding always starts with the I do's. And the I do's are, usually there's uh, three people involved, three parties involved. You look at the guy and you say, hey, do you? I do. And you look at the lady and you say, here's what you're doing. Are you sure you want to do this? And she says, I do. And then you look at her mom and dad, if that's what she wanted in the ceremony, and say, who's going to, are your mom and dad cool with this too? Okay, yeah, we're good to give her away. And then you go into the marriage ceremony so that I do part, this verbal agreement that everyone understands what's going on and we're all in, that happens kind of as a first setup for the wedding. I don't know how long ago that little tradition goes back, but that's kind of the idea behind the I do's. And so this is, in a sense, the I do part. This isn't the official ceremony. This is kind of that verbal agreement that gets made. And it says, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So he repeats them, gets the verbal agreement, and Moses writes them down so that the kids and the grandkids will all know this grand promise they made with God. Verse four, again, and Moses wrote down all these words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're going to have this ceremony. We got to have a venue. So he he, he starts laying out planning for the wedding, or planning for this relationship stuff. If you've ever done a wedding, you know how big of a pain that this kind of thing can be to decorate or to find the place and to make sure you got the tables and all that stuff and everything's decorated just so. And so here's Moses getting things ready, this place with a an altar where they can a- make these sacrifices they're about to make. And so here's the place where it's going to be formalized. He sets the scene and then it says, and he sent young men, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Let's pause right there for just one second. So, Moses starts having these young guys start offering sacrifices, okay? A burnt offering is one of the main things that was a regular part of Israel's sacrificial system. A burnt offering was a way of saying, God, I'm all in. My whole life is yours. And the way they kind of, the the thing that separated a burnt offering from the other offerings was they would take this animal and kill it and they would burn the whole thing. They would burn it completely to ash. So that complete offering of the animal was that symbolic way of saying, God, whatever, I'm all in with you. This relationship, I'm all in. And so it's an appropriate offering to be offering in this marriage ceremony, this covenant relationship thing that they're going to do, okay? But before that could happen, another part of this of this burnt offering was before they would kill the animal, the person bringing the sacrifice would lay their hands on this bull or a lamb or whatever it happened to be that they were going to burn, and they would kind of understand this, this animal is going to die in my place. This thing's getting ready to die for my sin. The reason this animal is about to have its throat slit and have its blood poured out is because I messed up, is because I didn't do something right. And sin always leads to death. And in this moment, God is allowing not me to die, but this animal to die in my place. And so they would lay their hands on this animal and they would acknowledge that their sin was going to be taken and covered by the blood of this animal. And then they would, with their own hands, take the knife, slit its throat, and it would make noise, and it would kick, and it would scream as its life drained from it. And they would catch all the blood. They didn't just let it go on the, on the ground. The blood was important. You notice he threw some blood on the altar. That was a symbolic way of saying to God, see, death took place. Proof. Death took place. Sin requires death. There was death. And the blood gets thrown on the altar as a way of saying there was, in fact, the, the, the end of this line that sin always leads to. That was, this road was walked, and the sin was, the sin was paid for, but it was by this animal. And so then they would burn the animal completely on the altar. So the ceremony starts out real bloody, and it doesn't get any better from there, um, because not only was this covenant sealed with blood, which it was very common for, for things like this, promises to be sealed with blood, because this is a way of also saying, hey, you know what happens when you break God's... Rules. Death, like this, is what happens to you eventually if you choose sin over obedience. And so this was a cov- so the promised covenant is sealed with blood, and their sins are paid for with blood. Boy, can you imagine what church would be like if every Sunday you came here and I just let a nice, cute little lamb up on stage? I'm like, hey, this is our lamb. He's our sin. And then just cut him in front of all of our little kids to watch see that. Like, wouldn't that? I mean there was probably a lot of messed up little Jewish kids that had to watch this stuff over and over again. Because, I, I mean, my kids, they get hide behind the couch when we watch like a Pixar movie and it gets a little intense. You know, they're peeking over the couch or hiding under a blanket. I cannot imagine how scarred they would be if they had to watch and endure this. And in this ceremony, they weren't just doing it once. This was a big deal because God was making this covenant with all the people. That's why it just says Moses had the young men go out and start killing the bulls. Because this was supposed to be for the entire nation, and they needed a lot of sacrifices to enter and seal this agreement. So it gets bloody and then it stays bloody because this promise was maintained with blood. It was started in blood and maintained with blood. Because that animal, it didn't cover all the sin, just the sin up to that point. And then you know how we are. We're just like them. We go out, we get forgetful. We do stupid things, sinful things, we get selfish, we tell lies, we betray people, we do sneaky things behind people's backs, we handle money in ways that maybe isn't the most honorable sometimes. We do things that we just should not do. And every time that happened, they had to bring another animal back, and they had to put their hands on it, allow the sin to be transferred to the animal, they cut its throat and let the animal's blood be spilled for their sin, because sin always, always, always leads and ends in death. And then Moses does something really, really weird, because he wants these people to have a visual or a visual reminder of the cost of sin and the, 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 the importance of this promise that God is giving them a way out of death, that he's allowing something else to die in their place. So again, he's got bowls and bowls of blood from these animals, and oops excuse me And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I don't know if he warned them. It doesn't say that. I don't know if they knew it was coming. This is not something that typically happened in most sacrifices. This is pretty unique to this particular moment of sealing the covenant deal. I don't know if it was I uh, like being at SeaWorld, and like the first like three rows needed ponchos, but everybody else was okay. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if they had got out some little water guns. I don't know what they did, but he slings the blood out over the crowd. And what's interesting is, these people, they couldn't go home, put their robes in their Maytag washer, Whirlpool washer, pour in some detergent and get it coming out sparkling white. Most of these people, they wouldn't wash their clothes. They had one set of clothes. And that blood stain that would be on there until it wore out or until the sun faded it slowly over time. So every day, these people would have a reminder of this promise. Every day, these people would remember, by seeing the stains on their clothing, this promise they made in God and the cost of sin. It always ends in blood. And again, that was their life for 1,200 years, was this bloody system where animals had to die in their place. And they all were keenly aware Everybody remembered, every kid knew growing up that sin always leads to death. And it was gory and it was intense, but the point was well learned for all the people. Sin always leads in death. The only way to keep you from dying was for another to die in your place, and that death was always proved with the blood being thrown on the altar. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All the Jewish people understood that rule. And the system of killing animals, it was costly, it was gory, it was gross, it was destructive. Um, But you know what? The system was just like the sin. It was costly, it was gory, it was destructive. And they learned that lesson every single day of their lives. No Israelite was allowed to forget the cost of sin. And then, after 1,200 years, 1,400 years, again, however you count it, Jesus shows up. And he lives a life of utter perfection. Never once sinning, never once letting his sel- a selfish desire lead him to act selfishly, never once letting him do something that would hurt another person or be against the other person's be- what is in the other person's best interest. He lived a perfectly sinless life from birth through death. And at 33 years old, When he had a perfect record, instead of making offerings for his sins, because he had none, he would become the offering for our sin. Rather than having to have something die in his place, Jesus would be the one to die in our place. Rather than allowing an animal to ever bleed for him, he would pour out his blood for us. Jesus came very much in the pattern of what had been happening for thousands of years in Israel, to be a sacrifice, to pay a death, because sin always leads to death and the death he died on a cross it was at the hands of people that was their job was making sure people died that that's what they did that was their 9 to 5 job was killing people and doing it in such a way that everybody saw that death and thought well I don't want to be that guy because they 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 cru- crucified people very publicly i mean it, it we kind of lose the sense of it because we don't live the, live in that world, but oftentimes they would crucify people and it would be like us going to the grocery store and seeing somebody bloodied and beaten and naked just hanging up at the grocery store. Like That would, that, like that would be so shocking to us to see somebody getting a lethal injection when we go to pick our kids up from school. Like, that's the kind of way that the Romans wanted this to happen. They killed people in brutal ways so that everybody would have a deterrent against breaking Roman law. And Jesus surrendered himself to be killed in that fashion by these people that did this every single day. And they started not with the crucifixion, but they beat him and had his skin ripped off by this thing called a cat of nine tails. It was like a little handheld whip that had a bunch of, instead of one piece of leather coming off, it had a bunch, and they had little hooks or broken pieces of pottery or snapped sharp bones tied to the end of the leather strap so that when it hit, it hurt and it grabbed flesh and it ripped it off. And then after he was beaten and probably had a lot of blood loss from that, he was made to carry his cross to his execution site. And we learned that it was too heavy for him and that he fell under its weight. And the weight of this, this beam that would have been a very heavy, very sizable beam... Fell and came crashing down on him, further smashing him into the ground. Um, we know that Jesus didn't last as long on a cross as most people did. Some people would hang on a cross for days. Jesus was just there for hours. Some people attribute it to the injuries he sustained when he fell with a cross beam on him. That it would have been equivalent to a a you know a, a car crash impact, you know, to some extent the injuries that would have done to his chest and his internal organs, and then after someone was made to help him carry that crossbeam to his execution site, they laid him down and they ran nails, most likely through his wrists and through his feet, and he was hung up on a cross. He would have been stripped naked. They don't put that in most of the art, but he would have probably been stripped naked because, again, it was meant to embarrass. It was meant to shame. It was meant to show this person deserves. This is a wretch of society. And he hangs there, and the way you, you died with crucifixion was you suffocated because as you hung there, You would slump in such a way that you couldn't breathe anymore. Your muscles would fully give away, and you would be hanging in a way that you could not breathe. And so what they would do is they would pull themselves up on the nail wounds to take a few breaths, and then they would slump down again and struggle. And slowly, most people would suffocate. That's why they would last so long, because they have enough strength, but as their strength failed, it would give way. Um, Sometimes they would even nail a little seat under, under their rear so that they would have a place to rest and get just enough breath to keep it going and agonizing them a long time. And so Jesus went through all of this and he bled and he suffered and he died until his strength gave out. His body was torn, his blood was spilled, his life was given up for us. He was that offering In many ways, just just like the, the Old Testament people had been bringing to the temple to be slaughtered, covering their sins for centuries, Jesus was that same type of sin. But because Jesus was God himself in the flesh, because Jesus was perfect and he had no sins to pay for, what he did was he took my sin and your sin on himself, not as a one time only thing that would have to be repeated over and over again. But instead, Jesus, because of his perfection, he is sacrificed was a once for all offering of atonement for our sins. Meaning he died once and it covered the sin for humanity for all of history. And so the sins we commit now are still covered in the blood of Jesus because he was such a perfect offering. He was way better, better as an offering than some dumb lamb or some bull that had just been you know, wandering in a field. He was God himself offering himself for us to satisfy the blood, the death that sin always leads to. And this covenant promise that we talk that, that, that the New Testament, the new covenant is named after, was a covenant that was sealed in blood, but it was also that moment where he atoned for our sin with his blood, just like the first covenant. And it wasn't just with one small nation in the random corner of the world, but this was a covenant with all, all people, a covenant that was made with all of humankind. Again, not bound by history, but stretching throughout all of time. That if we believe in the depths of our heart, that our sins are paid for by Jesus. If we can trust in him, that he was indeed our worthy sacrifice, and that by believing that he died on the cross for me, that that trust relationship, we have our sins forgiven. And because of him, we no longer face death. Because of him, we no longer stand before God condemned, needing blood to cover us because he has wiped it away with his death on the cross. We no longer face punishment. And instead, what we can look forward to in our life is not having to redo this sin thing over and over and over again, but we can look forward in our lives with hope because Jesus was a better offering, because Jesus was a better sacrifice for me and for you, and I can have a hope that I can live a life better than the one that I have lived thus far. I can live a life in the grace of God, knowing that 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 sins hold in my life was broken by my better sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And the only problem that I can see with what Jesus did on the cross versus what the Old Testament Jewish people had to do was our forgetfulness. Because you see, the Jewish people, like I said, they just did this on repeat. I mean, they would, anytime they sinned, they could come back. They would offer a sacrifice and be reminded all over again that sin always leads to death and that, and that God has provided a sacrifice in our place because he's good and he's kind and he's gracious. They, they learn that every day of the week. They would, if they weren't offering stuff, they knew other people who were. But what about us? Jesus died once for all. And we get forgetful and we forget that price of sin. And we think, eh, little white lie here, little misstep there, little this, little that. You know how we are. I know how I am anyway. I get selfish. I get forgetful. And Jesus took care of that problem too. In Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, hours before he was arrested, hours before he died, Jesus shared one last meal with his closest friends. And he said, he says, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it because it would be one big loaf. He broke it And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He gave us a way to remember that sin always leads to death. He gave us a way to remember the grace and the sacrifice that he gave and showed to us on that cross. And it's a little bit gory. But it's not gross. Luckily for us, he didn't pour him cups of, of blood and say, here, take a swig. Remember that I died for you. Remember what happened. He let us have a little bit of a substitute. We can drink juice. In our, in our case, some people prefer they do wine like this, like they would have done in the original ceremony. But, <coughs> excuse me. So luckily, Jesus tamed it down a little bit for us, for those of us with weak stomachs. And, but he gave us a way to remember, a way to repeat, a way that we could in some way come back and remember what Jesus did for us, that, to remember that this new covenant is our covenant, this new promise, this atoning for blood, it is something that we live under every day, that I don't just have my life transformed by Jesus because that one time I got baptized years ago when I was 17, or at church camp in a pool or wherever you got baptized, okay, this, is, this reminds me that no, Jesus is my life today. The reason I don't have to kill something and cover my, cover my sins with blood is because Jesus already did that. My life today is by the grace and mercy of Jesus. And we remember that week in and week out as we take communion. And there's a side of it that's a little bit upsetting as we remember that sin always leads to death. And there's a side of it that's joyous as we remember but God loved us that while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place and we can have freedom and grace and hope in our lives because he chose to shed his blood so that we wouldn't have to. And so as we take communion, in just a few moments, I'd encourage our servers, please go uh, back and prepare to serve communion. I just want you to remember all of that. Yeah, I know it's a lot, but remember this. That what Jesus did, it has strong ties to the history of the Old Testament and that sacrificial system. So that when Jesus came, it was meant to be this culmination of these decades of sen- or centuries of practice that was deeply ingrained in these people, and to be freed from an old system to something that was much, much better. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was the first person to ever die fully being perfect, meaning that he didn't need an animal sacrifice. He didn't need to go through all the the hoops that the Old Testament had laid out because he had fully lived up to the promise. So he was able to end the old covenant and start something brand new with you and me. And, that's what we remember today, this brand new covenant, that Jesus died in our place by his grace and by his mercy. And so I want us to do something a little different than we normally do. Normally we pass the plates, you grab a cup, or the two stacked cups, and you take it when you feel like it. Today I'd like us just to, to pause a little bit. I'd like you to take your cups and wait. And I want us to take it all together to remind us that this is our promise, that we are united in Christ through this amazing sacrifice that he paid for us. That just like um, the Old Testament system was a very public reminder, I want this to be our public reminder that we enjoy this promise together today. So, servers, you can go ahead and begin serving. Um, I'll come back up in just a few minutes, and I'll pray for us, and I'll lead us through taking. So, if you weren't listening, don't take it. There's always somebody. We've done this in the past. Somebody always forgets. You get in the habit, and you just go for it. But wait just a moment, and I'll be back up to lead us through. Now we take the bread and we remember that the only one who never deserved death chose death in our place so that we might never have to go through that terrible, terrible thing. Let's take the bread. And as we take the juice, don't lose sight of the fact that sin always leads to death. Sin always requires blood to be paid. Blood to be spilled. And Jesus, again, chose that for you out of his deep, deep love for you. Let's take the juice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us in sending your Son that we might have freedom from our sin with a better promise in Christ A once for all gift that would span the centuries that would enable your mission of salvation to redeem us from our sin, to save us from the death that we deserve would span the entire world. It would launch out from this unknown part almost of the Roman world. This one tiny little corner with just a handful of people even clinging to belief. And because of this amazing grace, it spread through the entire world. And we follow in the footsteps of generations of people whose life was firmly planted on this new covenant promise of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so we trust that what he did on the cross for us was enough. That his, his sacrifice for us was a true and full covering for all of our sins. So we don't have to keep coming back to you and replaying our regrets. We don't have to keep coming back to you, cowering in, in shame, but we can come to you as children who are forgiven, children who can come to their loving Heavenly Father. We can admit we've messed up, we can admit we still sin, we can admit we still fall short, and we can ask for your help and your grace as we move forward in a life where we want to leave sin behind. Not because you would, you'll, you'll only love us when we're, when we're good, but because you've already loved us in Christ you've already forgiven us before we cleaned us before you cleaned us up and father as we come here today and we take together I pray that we would understand that we are united when we say church family we mean that we are united together in the blood of Jesus that it was his blood that was spilled to prove that sin always leads to death and that the death of our sin the death that our sin required was paid for so thank you for that sacrifice, thank you for that grace, thank you for that mercy. May we not only be bad news people that focus on the fact that sin always leads to death, but we would also be people who, who embrace and celebrate the other side of that story, that in Jesus' death you brought us life, and not just temporary life, but life everlasting. What a great God you are. May that story fill us with joy this week as we remember and we celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross, and the amazing love letter you wrote to the human race through him. It's in his name we pray, amen.